Welcome to a special podcast of Hong Kong Stories. I'm the producer, Rachel Smith. This special Hong Kong Stories Presents show was put together by our creative director, Janita Smith, and was performed in May 2017. Like all of our shows at Hong Kong Stories, the stories are true, first-person stories, and were performed without notes in front of a live audience at the Fringe Club in Hong Kong. Unlike our regular shows, though, this show's a little different. You'll find the stories shorter, in some case fragments of stories, broken up and interwoven to create a picture of a day. This show had the theme of time. We called it 24-7 Times of Our Lives. And it travels through times, all 24 hours of a single day. It's the minutes and hours that connect these stories. Stories which happen in different countries, different decades, and even different time zones. This podcast is also a little longer than our usual podcasts, and the speakers you will hear are Janita, Yuri, Jen, Austin, Kristen, Rachel, Nicole, and Sheridan. So sit back and relax while we tell you a story. Six oh one AM It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. As the sun rose over the Thames River, London was revealed in all of its glory. I'm standing on Battersea Bridge, and even though the air's chilly, I'm warmed by a hot cup of tea from the local burger van. And next to me is a guy I've just met the night before. And I don't know it yet, but he will be the father of my two children. The alarm shocks me awake at 7 o'clock a.m. I open my eyes to the seemingly perennial darkness of the Canadian winter. It's minus 20-something outside. I stretch to full length. I luxuriate in the weight of the duvet over my body, keeping me in a warm cocoon. I look up to the ceiling, you know, delaying to the very last moment, putting my feet down on that freezing cold wooden floor. I think for a moment, I could be in Seoul. I could be in Tokyo, Singapore, Hong Kong. What the hell am I doing in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada in the dead of winter? 6.15 a.m. The early bird gets the worm. It is 6.15 a.m., way earlier than I would normally get up as a first-year university student. But today is the day I'm going to turn over a new leaf and get myself into shape. The university swimming pool opens at 7 a.m. And if I get there ready to jump in the pool at that time, I'll have enough time to have a half-hour swim and still get to my 8.30 class on time. I have made pledges like this before, but and totally slept through them. So I'm a little surprised when it's now 6.45 a.m. and I'm up, dressed, and on my way across campus. I have my bathing suit on underneath my clothes. The only time I've ever worn it before is to hang out at the lake in the summer. It's beautiful, though. It's a peach one-piece with a pattern of pale yellow and teal tropical flowers across it all the trendy late 80s pastel colors in one swimsuit. 
I think the only time it's ever been fully submerged in water is when I've washed it. <laughs> but that's fine, that's the old me. The new me is at the pool and emerging from the changing room. Perfect, I have the place to myself. It's silent as I slip into the, Olymp the Olympic-sized pool and stare down the lane in front of me. It's a little chillier than I thought it would be, and the end seems a little bit far away. But no worries, I push off and head towards it. I'm not exactly doing a doggy paddle, but it's not a standard front crawl either. My face mostly stays up out of the water because I can't quite get the breathing rhythm right. And about halfway through, I stop to see just how far I am. Eh, not too bad. So I put on a flurry of mighty kicks to get there faster. As I reach the end and I'm reaching out towards the edge, I see a pair of feet. Somebody standing on the pool deck. I crane my head way up and I see a really cranky old guy staring down at me. What are you doing? Swimming. It's Monday, the pool is closed to the public. It's the swim team practice today. And he gestures to the other end of the pool. So I turn and look behind me and I see 10 guys, <laughs> tall, fit, and all wearing really serious looking Speedos. <laughs> it's the entire men's swim team and they've been standing there watching me. <laughs> I am frozen with embarrassment until the guy above me says, so get out! I'm so flustered that I forget that there's a ladder just to the right of me and behind me, and I start trying to heave myself up over the side. I miss the first time, but I get the second time. But I have to kind of roll over and flop onto the deck of the pool, like a fish that's just been caught. Then I stand up and I've got to do the walk of shame all the way back along the pool towards the women's changing room. When I get closest to where the guys are standing, I am only looking at my feet. And I really want to break into a run, but I remember that you're not allowed to run at the swimming pool. <laughs> and I never went back to that pool again. The workday runs from about 8.30 a.m. until 4.30 in the afternoon. I slip into my seat at about 8.25, turn to the pile of unopened mail beside me, and my mind checks out for the eight hours of absolutely mind-numbing secretarial labor that lies ahead of me. I mean, I know what I do is absolutely essential to the smooth running of the office, but my mind just absolutely revolts. I mean, I've met with the executives from global tech firms. I've given presentations to hundreds at international conferences and now I open the mail, I stamp it, I log it, and I route it on to its proper destination and all for a pittance. 9.05 a.m. Time on your hands. It costs a uh, dollar twenty-five in quarters to do a load of laundry in the basement. Living in a six-story uh, brick residential unit in a college town, and I want to get an early start, do the laundry, and then move on with an ambitious day. But inevitably, when you go down into the basement, you're going to encounter Fred. And uh, 
Most people try to avoid Fred. He's the handyman that lives in the basement, but not because he's a handyman that lives in a basement, but because he's an overly talkative, overly argumentative, and overly opinionated handyman that lives in the basement. And when he corners you, he will not let you go. And uh, so the other tenants would see me talking to him, and they would say, what do you guys talk about for so long? Why are you even talking to him at all? He's, he's nuts. And he would drop these kind of provocative things uh, out of nowhere and say things like, you know, Austin, the thing about, the thing about gun control is it's really about one group of people forcing their fears on another group of people. I grew up with guns, and they're more like tools. And if you took that bait, if you said something like, you mean like tools to kill people? If you took that bait, <laughs> you'd be going for another hour and a half, for sure, for sure. And so uh, he could give people quite a, a hard time, and sometimes it looked like it was on purpose. So I once asked him, Fred, why, why, why are you goading people? And he said, Austin, it really doesn't have to do with me. You have to understand the people in this town, some of them are working so hard on whatever minutia that they're doing, it's like they're in some kind of academic mind shaft. And if I just kind of stumble upon it and open the door a little bit and some rays of common sense hit them, they get kind of blinded and flustered and disoriented and confused and they get annoyed. So it really doesn't have to do with me. I'd like to take credit for it, but I can't. And then somewhere along the way, the spin cycle would begin and I'd start hearing about how he grew up, and he grew up in a way that you don't really hear about anymore. He grew up in logging camps and raising uh, livestock, and he would say, you know, what, what really bugged me about some of the people I grew up with is that they would call them dumb animals. You know, if you're confined in a small space with a 2,000-pound steer, and it doesn't like you, it will let you know. With one shake, it will just knock the life out of you against the pen. So they're not dumb animals. You've got to respect them. It's like, okay, Fred, I hear that. And then somewhere along the dry cycle, we'd be hitting the, the lower, the, the, the deeper levels, and we hear about his experience in Vietnam. And he, he told me he was a specialist in demolitions. I said, well, well what does that involve exactly? He said, what does that involve? It involves me being dropped from a helicopter into a jungle to try to remove a landmine from under the foot of some poor kid and try not to get either of us blown up in the process. And it, this was way before the Hurt Locker, but I figured, that don't, they, don't you have any protective gear or anything? I said, Austin, for me to do my job, he's got to trust me. If he's standing on top of a landmine and I'm head to toe in body armor, how is that going to happen? I never wore it. And also, it gets all fogged up. You can't see anything. <laughs> and then at this point, we're kind of moving into the, the dry, the drying. The laundry's coming out and going into the dryer. And uh, he started the, the, the softer side of Fred starts coming out. And he told me about how he grew up. These are non-chronological. But he told me how he grew up in a house of amazing women. And the men were all out in the logging camp, or they had, they were either disappeared, had drifted off, or, or, or deceased. So 
it was all the, all the women in the household that he really came to appreciate, and he felt he had developed this kind of unique connoisseurship and appreciation of, of, of women in general. He said, I was, just the other day, I was down at the bar, and I'm, there was a whole table full of women, and we just started dancing, and I was twirling them around, and they were enjoying it so much. I said, how did you manage that, Fred? He said, oh, it's not a trick, Austin. <laughs> I listen to them. I appreciate them. I enjoy their feminine charms, and they enjoy being enjoyed. <laughs> All right, I see. I see that. And uh, so there was a, a <laughs> it's always this, this critical moment. There, um, there was, so Fred, I talked to Fred because he would tell me about a life that was not mine. And these experiences that some of them I would never have, a lot of them I would never want to have. And every now and then, he would just drop a real gemstone right in front of me in a way that I couldn't get anywhere else. And once he said, Austin, you got to remember that the most important quality in life is courage. And I thought about it for a second, I thought I had him. Said, yeah, but Fred, doesn't every major spiritual and religious tradition say that love is the most important quality? And he thought about it for a second, but he more kind of felt around inside for a second. He said, that is true. But in order to love truly and deeply, you need great courage. I thought, not bad, Fred. I, I'm going to hold on to that one. And this was an incredibly inefficient way to do laundry. <laughs> but for $1.25, you can't beat some time with Fred. My mother is visiting me in Brooklyn. My petite, gracious, lovely mother. We're walking along the main street in my neighborhood, which is lined with elegant brownstone buildings. It's a quiet Sunday morning, and we're talking about the quiche that we're going to buy at the bakery. When we reach the corner, a car speeds through the intersection, and the driver lays on the horn. Without hesitating, my mother yells, Fuck you, motherfucker. <laughs> then she turns back to me. What were you saying, honey? <laughs> 12 noon. Caught at a bad time. It's August. And it's hot. We've spent the day slouching about, trying to avoid doing our chores, running in and out, shouting at one another, shouting at the dog, shouting at my mother. Every time the whole crowd of us runs in the house, it's like an army. There's me, three of my brothers, my brother's friend, and mum's in the house with the baby, who's just learned how to crawl. She sounds a little bit fed up, but then grown-ups always sound fed up. It's the tail end of August. And we're bored. We've already ridden our bikes all over the lawn, narrowly missing my mother as she was hanging out the laundry. We've gone down to the creek fishing for minnows. We might have left the strainer there, but honestly, who uses a strainer anyway? And we've asked our mother three times 
if we could go and play with the neighbors, to which she says, no, you went and played with the neighbors yesterday. They'll be sick of you. Now go outside. It's too wet to put up the tent. The beach is too far away. We don't have anything to do. We go in and ask mom if we can have a snack. Mom, I want a snack. Have an apple, she says. I'm changing the baby. Now it's lunchtime. And all of us troop indoors and sit at the table. We get out the cutlery and we sit there. Mom, what's for lunch? She comes in, she puts the baby in the high chair and straps him down. Mom, what's for lunch? She goes over to the fridge and gets the leftovers from the night before. We pick up our forks and knives and we start banging the table. What's for lunch? What's for lunch? What's for lunch, we say. Stop that, says my mother, and she gives us that look. You know the look, the one that says, that's enough. That's enough. It's fun to annoy grown-ups. We do one more, what's for lunch? But then we stop, because, you know, there's a thing is too far. Mom goes to the fridge. My, brother my older brother says, I want juice. My younger brother says, I want milk. I say, I want apple juice. She sighs, goes back to the fridge again. The spaghetti is starting to get hot. We look over. I look at my younger brother, kick him under the table. Mom, he kicked me. Stop that, said Mom. Just stop. I stick my tongue out at my brother anyways. My youngest brother spills his milk on the table. My mom cleans it up. She's got one hand feeding herself and one hand wiping the baby's face. Mom, can we go to the beach today, says my older brother. No, she says. The car isn't working. Oh, we could ride our bikes. I can't take the baby on the bike. I've got a flat, she says. Ah, oh, you never let us do anything, he says. Oh, I say, oh, you gave me orange juice and I wanted apple juice. Mom says, you're old enough to get it yourself, but she gets up anyway. The dog comes over and sits underneath the baby's chair and starts drooling. The baby's making a mess. She dishes out all the food for us. And my older brother starts saying at her again, Mom, how come you won't let us go to the beach? You never let us do anything. The neighbors go to the beach all the time by themselves. You can't go to the beach unsupervised. And I've got the baby. And we can't go, all of us together, in the bikes. You never let us do anything. You are the worst mom ever. And that's when the worm turns. My mild-mannered, ever-polite, quiet mother walks up to my older brother, and she looks him straight in the eye. She picks up his bowl of spaghetti, and she dumps it over his head. A shocked silence descends upon the room. Did that just happen? Oh my God. We know. We have finally done it. We finally pushed her too far. And there's my older brother looking at her with this expression, his mouth open, shock and horror on his face. Did, what, what did you do that for? He said. 
and in a moment of rebellion against the tyranny of children and housework and everything else that goes into a mother's day, she picks up his apple juice and dumps that over his head too. A lunch hour comes as a blessed relief. And I, I guard this hour jealously. I slip misanthropically from the dull, gray 1970s office block that I work in, scutter across the street to the Trident booksellers. It's a, it's a small bookstore cafe where I can escape into a book, munch on my salad roll, and savor a piping hot latte. I turn pages, I chew, I sip, I swallow. I delay to the absolute last second my return to that drudgery. I know each second of tardiness is going to be noted and commented on by those gnarled gossips that share the secretarial antechamber with me. 2.17 p.m. It's a race against time. Getting a good view of the Golden Gate Bridge is one thing. But the best way to see the Golden Gate Bridge is to win a bike over it. Bike along, bike along Golden Gate Bridge with a stunning views of the city in two to three hours. Get to the other side of the bridge and see the peaceful, quiet bayside town of um, Sausalito, the, the side cone of San Francisco. You can, you can even challenge yourself doing a one trip back. This is the number one thing to do in San Francisco, according to my travel Bible, The Lonely Planet. So how can I possibly miss it? I'm going to do it. The only tiny little concern is I haven't ridden a bike for more than 10 years. But that's fine. I'm not even ambitious. I'll just do it one way, and I'll take the ferry back. So I went to the bike at a bike shop and, and started riding. I've got more than like I've got plenty of times to like plenty of time to um, to ride to finish the ride, catch the ferry, and even explore sauce a little. It's going to be fine. Just like what Lonely Planet said, there is a designated biking link to the bridge, and it's very flat. It's easy. But since I haven't ridden a bike for so long, I rode slowly. I got to the base of the bridge, and now I have to go uphill to get onto the bridge. Now. I don't really know how to adjust the gear. It doesn't exist in the bikes that I rode before. And I figure out Every time when I change to a different level, it gets harder to pedal. <laughs> so I decided I'll pick one level, level five, right at the middle, because I'm a moderate Chinese. I don't like anything extreme. <laughs> but riding the bike uphill in the middle gear is tough. I use all my strength to get uphill but I can feel that there is a force pushing me downwards. So I got, off, I got out of my bike and started walking my bike. I made it to the starting point of the bridge. I have 
three hours. Now I have three hours to finish the ride, catch the ferry, and see Sausalito. 2.24 p.m. Only time will tell. Hi, I'm Auntie Jen. And spending time with Auntie Jen Week is a summertime tradition at my sister's place. Every summer when I go back to Canada, my sister and brother-in-law are really busy running the restaurant, so I get to spend time with their kids. On the second day of Auntie Jen Week last year, my sister's neighbor came over to give her a ride into work. Wow, all day long with two little kids. That's so tiring, neighbor lady says. I'm so glad mine are grown up and out of the house. Oh no, it's fine, I have a great time. And I look over to the couch and wave to my four-year-old, four-year-old niece, Elliot, and my eight-year-old nephew, Kieran. And they look up from their cartoons and give me a big smile. Besides, they're angels, I say. And they smile even bigger. <sighs> my sister comes out. Oh, before my sister comes out, neighbor later starts asking me about myself and says, don't you have kids of your own? No. Oh, fuck off, I think. <laughs> but I say, no, no, it's great. I love it. I get to spend a week having fun and get all that adoration, and then I have the rest of the year off. It's perfect. Neighbor lady looks skeptical. Oh, I guess. Then my sister comes out and says, I'm ready. What are you guys going to do? Lake yells my nephew. Park yells my niece. And my sister jumps in. Remember, if you take them to the park, you can always take Ellie in the stroller. Oh, it was fine yesterday. We, I just gave her a piggyback ride when she got tired. Neighbor lady is shocked. You walked all the way to the park with two little kids? That's a long way. And my sister chimes in. She underestimated. She doesn't have kids of her own. Oh, thanks, sis. So they leave. And we spend the day together and have a fabulous time. We do it all, the lake, the park, board games. And the conversation about my questionable childcare skills does kind of stay at the back of my mind for the day. And it may have made me a little bit more perky than usual, but I don't think the kids noticed. By mid-afternoon, my nephew's had enough and says he's going to go off and read for a while. So I turn to Elliot and say, do you want to make some chocolate chip cookies? Yay! I get to put the stuff in. We start, we preset the oven and then start to make my tried and true chocolate chip cookie recipe. This is the one that I make all the time for the kids that I teach and it is a huge hit with my friends. This is something that I know I do well. I put Elliot up on the counter so she can help me put things in. She cracks in an egg for me and I dig the shells out and then I start mixing. But there's something wrong with the batter. It's not coming together. But I'm not worried because I know we have enough ingredients to start over. Elliot, however, is a little bit put off. What are you doing? Oh, well, we just made a mistake. We're going to start over again. Don't you know how to make chocolate chip cookies? Of course I do. Mommy knows how to make chocolate chip cookies. You can give her a call. It's fine. We don't need to call Mommy. As if I'm going to call my sister and interrupt her working in a kitchen at her restaurant to ask her about a basic cookie recipe. Especially after the comments this morning. I'd never hear the end of it. It's fine. I ignore all of Elliot's other questions and we start on the second batch. This time, as she's putting in the baking powder for me, she takes the baking powder cover spoon and puts it towards her mouth. 
Oh, Ellie, you don't want to do that. But what do I know? She puts it in anyway. And I can tell from the look on her face immediately she knows she's made a mistake. But she looks me right in the eye, pulls the spoon out, and says, delicious. Sure. So we survived the egg round this time, but when I put the dry ingredients in, everything looks too dry. Another batch ruined. As I'm staring into the mixing bowl, Elliot says, did you make a mistake again? Yep, looks like it. How does a four-year-old manage to look that patronizing? It's okay, we'll just start all over again. Mommy never throws out cookie stuff. Mommy knows how to make cookies. Just give her a call. We don't need to call. It's fine. And I'm a little bit ashamed about the sharpness in my voice, but it does get her off the topic. So we start the third batch, but she gets bored after adding the sugar this time and goes off to play Legos. Finally, though, third time's the charm, and I have a good batch. I spoon out all the cookies onto the cookie sheet and open up the preheated oven. But it barely feels warm. And then I remember, my sister's oven uses Fahrenheit, not like my Hong Kong oven, which uses Celsius. Oh, well. So I readjust the temperature and leave the cookie tray with the ready-to-bake batch right on the counter. And then I hear a voice behind me. Mommy puts the cookies in the oven when she bakes the cookies. Oh. So do I, sweetheart. I just need to let the oven heat up a bit more. Mommy doesn't do that. You should give her a call. She can help you. I don't need any help. And then frazzled, and I just want to get her off my back, so I open the oven, put the tray in, and I set the timer for a little bit longer than it needs to be. Fifteen minutes later, the cookies come out. Beautiful golden brown on top, and black as coal on the bottom. As I'm staring at them on the cooling rack, I think, why could I not just have stood up to a four-year-old and let the oven heat up? I do have enough batter to make a dozen good cookies, but that is a pathetic result, having used three batches worth of ingredients and been cooking all afternoon. I am a failure as an auntie. This is going to become one of those stories that they tell at family dinners. Remember the time we left Jen, the childless one, alone with the kids for the week? She didn't know when to use the stroller or even how to make a simple batch of cookies. At that moment, my niece and nephew rush in. Yay, cookies, can we have one? Oh, I don't think you want them, guys. I burnt them. Elliot runs over and grabs one, just a little bit, and she pops the whole thing into her mouth. And as she's trying her hardest to chew her way through this cookie, she looks at me right in the eye and says, delicious. And I realize that as an auntie, I'm doing just fine. <laughs> 3.57pm. Take your time, why don't you? Lonely Planet is right. The bridge is magnificent. I can see like giant wire cables on both sides. And if I look ahead, I can see the first bridge tower. And I can look to the front, I can see the biking lane. But it's so empty, which is a little bit off from what Lonely Planet said. Ding, someone tried to pass me. Ding, another guy tried to pass me. 
So I turn around. The entire crew of bikes are trying to pass me. I was blocking the entire lane. So I drove my, so I rolled my bike to the side and let these guys go. Lonely Planet said the bridge is 2.7 kilometers long, but it's wrong. I can feel it, it's 100 times longer. The I have passed the first tower for a while, but I still haven't seen the second one. And it's so windy here. My bike got shaky. I presume that the view, of the, the view from the bridge is, is stunning, just like what Lonely Planet said. But honestly, I haven't seen it because my eyes were on my bike the whole time and my mind is all about controlling the bike. The road is like endless and I'm getting tired. I wanted to give up. But thinking of Sosalito and Ferry ahead, I kept going. Ah, 4.30 marks the end of the work day. I whip out of the building on the moment, without a thought of the cold and the raging snow outside. It's 4.30 and I'm free already. It feels like the day is just starting. Think movie montage. I'm twirling around in the falling white snow before falling back on a crisp white lawn that makes snow angels. Escape is furthest from my mind as I burst through the front door of the house into the piping hot living room. I'm shedding my hat, my gloves, my coat as I go to the kitchen to cook a healthy home-cooked meal and make plans for how I'm going to spend the evening ahead. I'm still on that damn bridge. <laughs> 5.32pm. There's a time and a place for everything. When I slip into the pool, it's the first time I've been cool all day. It's six o'clock and the sky has just started glowing blue and orange. The white outline of the moon has just come out and the streaky contrails of jets overhead look like the long trace of fingers against the sky. Outside the Hotel Cambodiana, it's chaos. Motorbike horns are bleeding, Cars are honking. The clogged streets of Phnom Penh are a cacophony. I've had to fight my way to get here, dodging, cursing, leaving behind my laptop, my stories for the day filed, edited, and out on the wire. I've had to sneak in to get here as I always do, pretending my room number is 249 where the visiting BBC correspondent stayed last week or 467, where the US Embassy keeps the suite for the ambassador. I always ask people their room numbers when they come to Phnom Penh. <laughs> it's the only pool in town. Weekends at the Cambodiana are a madhouse. Every lounge chair is taken, every inch of concrete is covered with a towel. The diplomats, aid workers, UNESCO, UNDP, the UN peacekeepers and the Vietnamese prostitutes accompanying them who splash around in their black bras and panties in the pool because they don't have swimsuits, sometimes with purple bruises on their backsides. Everyone is here. But at six o'clock on a weeknight, 
there is stillness. I am alone in the pool, and the bats, like old friends, swoop down beside me as I swim. Each rhythmic meditation removes the stains of the day. The first thing in the morning trip to the foreign ministry to find out where the Khmer Rouge had attacked the day before and how many people had been killed. Breathe. The daily noon briefing at UN headquarters, not quite the five o'clock follies, but equally full of lies. Breathe. The race to the central market to find out if the rumor of a bomb going off was true. Breathe. The waiting, waiting, and agonizing waiting in the hot, hot sun for the king to just come out and give his press conference. Breathe. The race back to my laptop, type, 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 beat Reuters, faster, faster. Breathe. It is now in this liminal hour in these stolen moments of twilight, in the suspended time in between, when it's no longer day, not quite yet night, this all washes away, punctuated by the strokes through an otherwise empty pool, the sounds of water swirling, the flutter of bat wings. I emerge and rinse off, cleansed of the dust and detritus and disquiet of the day, ready again, to face the honking horns and zipping motorbikes and the world beyond. Six fifteen p.m. It's never too late, right? I got to the other side of the bridge finally, and now I have to go downhill to get to source a little. I held my handlebar tight and started riding. The slope, the downhill slope is like the edge of a cliff. Together with the wind, I feel like my bike is flying it's, and it's getting out of control. So I immediately apply the front brake. My bike made a complete stop and I almost got thrown out of the bike. But I kept riding. Eventually, I made it to the entrance of Sausalito. It's 45 minutes until the last ferry departs. I know that I'm not going to see Sausalito, but I'm going to catch that ferry. <laughs> there is no biking lane in Sausalito, so I have to use the road and I have to stop at traffic lights. It's 15 minutes until the last ferry departs and I still can't see that fucking pier. Sorry. I'm not riding back, I'm not riding back, I'm not riding back, I kept telling myself. From that ferry ride onwards, I never use Lonely Planet again. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this first half of our special Hong Kong Presents show, 24-7, Times of Our Lives. The second half will be published on next week's podcast, so keep an ear out for it. If you want to know more about learning to tell great stories, visit us on hongkongstories.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to share it with your friends. And you can always leave us some feedback. Every little bit helps. If you're lucky enough to be in Hong Kong, grab yourself some tickets to our next live show. Details can be found on the website. Everyone has a story to tell.